tired of weather your buzz and come stay a while at the baker's dozen. Uh, welcome back to Baker's Dozen. Today we have our first international guest, Sam Boehm, all the way from Yorkshire in the UK. Sam, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. That's good, man. I've got to say, my first impression when I met you wasn't wasn't the greatest. I thought, here's this guy on this on this beautiful tour in Egypt and he's got off the bus early, doesn't want to have lunch with the group and he's going to get KFC in Egypt. But, but soon did I find out every every meal in Egypt I took the tour was exactly the same. So I kind of, I could kind of understand where you're coming from a few days in. Yeah, we'd already been there two weeks by that stage. And can you imagine a KFC review over the pyramids? I mean, that's a unique opportunity. So run us a bit of background about your schooling, Sam. Uh, well, I grew up in um, rural Derbyshire and just went to the local school there. Uh, just an extremely average school, really. Not bad, not good, I think. Yeah, but how were you as a student? Uh, well, I was pretty pretty nerdy, I think it's fair to say. I, I was I was known as seatbelt boy because I was the only boy on the bus who would insist on wearing his seatbelt. <laughs> and I think that stubbornness has gone through all the, all the way to now, hasn't it? Well, I keep that as a bit of a badge of honour, to be honest. <laughs> And what about your high school? Well, that was uh, pretty much more or less the same. Yeah, so I, I was just a bit of a nerd, really. You know, I managed to avoid getting bullied just because I played football, I think, which just gave me enough enough sort of coolness to avoid being uh, being picked on, I think, probably. I think your quick wit might have stopped a few bullies in their tracks, too. Well, maybe. So, yeah, run us through your junior... Are you still playing football? No, when I went to university, I didn't... Uh, my, my football career ended. Well, mainly because I've become more interested in American football. I did go along to the American football tryouts at one stage, and it was going to be too big a time commitment, I think, anyway. But then they sent around an email about social. And the, there was quite a lot of uh, extremely inappropriate stuff in this email. Um, so I thought, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be the one who does this. And uh, sent it over to the student union and got the whole society fined and things. Oh, So you've got to be fairly brave to uh, do that to probably the most intimidating 50 or so people in the entire university. Yeah, did they find out it was you? No, it was all anonymous. Yeah. Okay. So not that brave. So um, was was it like sexist or how degrading oh, was the stuff? Yeah. In this? I mean, I've just said it on a on a on a thing going out into the, <laughs> into the internet. But I don't think the girls at your uni might be logging onto this. So what was I on the email right. that was that offensive? Oh, it was just bordering on sort of rape culture sort of stuff. Oh, okay. um, yep. So I thought they don't need to build that around something. You know, I just wanted to play some American football. Yeah. I'd have probably been killed pretty early on if I tried to play the American football anyway. So I was going to say you're 50 kilos dripping wet, mate. There's not, there's not too much of you. So yeah, yeah, it would have it would have ended badly. <laughs> but I'd have probably enjoyed it before until until the first tackle. Yeah. So how did you get into American football anyway? Just at university, first year of university, I found myself watching it a bit. I think it's uh, just you know it's, it's like chess on a on a field. Really, it's got more tactics than pretty much any other game I've ever watched, and so I'm pretty uh, fascinated by it ever since. And what what other hobbies do you have, Sam? Well, politics I'm pretty involved in, and yeah, it's just sport generally. I think I go to a lot of football as well and different stuff like that. So sport yeah. and politics are my main things. You're a long-suffering Derby supporter, or Derby? Is it Derby or Derby, Derby. over there? Derby. Derby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's there's a lot of suffering involved in sporting Derby. Yeah, and you're married quite young. How how old were you when you got married? Twenty-five. Reasonably young. Yeah. Not massively. Actually. You weren't going to take it. You weren't going to take a chance at another girl would fall in love with love with you, were you? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> when you know, you know. <laughs> and run us through your professional career. Well, so. It, I went to medical school um, at 18, six years at medical school up in Newcastle, and then graduated 
sort of almost two years ago now uh, and that was all going well and I'm starting GP training so community medicine in the uh, in August um, and it was all going well until coronavirus came along and now I'm stuck on a coronavirus ward a few months. It's only for a short amount of time but it does mean a lot more night shifts and evenings than I would have been doing otherwise. So. And have you had have you been tested for it yet? Uh, I, I was tested two weeks ago um, and it was negative. And how I'm not convinced. I still think it was positive, but uh, and it was really unpleasant. Okay, so what, why do you think it was positive and they said negative? Well, there's, there's always going to be, well, they don't really know, but the, the estimates are sort of 20% of people who are positive will test negative. And presumably, as you get more sick, you know, the, the, the sicker you are, the more likely you are to, have a, to actually test positive. And I was I just sort of run down and uh, headache and all fairly non-specific stuff but it was all very unusual for me um, I'm never normally ill so um, uh, who knows maybe I was negative but, but it certainly wasn't pleasant and our Aussie listeners ears would have pricked up when you said you studied in Newcastle because a lot of our UK culture um, comes from the Geordies so is that a kind of an accurate description of Newcastle nightlife uh, well supposedly I, I, I'm not the best person to be asking about it <laughs> I mean I don't drink alcohol so that immediately sort of knocks you out of uh, a lot of that culture but certainly most of the people who are going to university with me had chosen Newcastle for that reason rather than academic prowess yeah, okay so how did you end up there then uh well medical school wise you, you don't normally get a lot of choice i actually had a choice between uh, newcastle manchester and liverpool but newcastle was just one of the it's a smaller city which i thought would be nicer than somewhere as massive as manchester and yeah, medical school wise it's probably slightly better but it doesn't really matter Yep. And what were some of the biggest challenges you faced faced over the six years at medical school? Well, it's obviously difficult coming from a little secondary school where you're always at near the top in the exams to you know, being amongst 400 A-star students. And they do. I think the thing that was sort of fairly noteworthy was how they immediately started trying to get you to be competitive with each other. So, for example, after every exam, they would release your exact position in the year group, um, which just doesn't seem really necessary. Uh, and then a lot of the exams are um, sort of pass or fail. Uh, you know, it's pretty ruthless compared to most university courses. So yeah. it, it was just all exam-related exam stress, really. I know how competitive you are, mate. So where did you rank in the 400? I'm tipping top 50. Obviously, it varied wi- widely. Um, I averaged out about middle. Okay, about the 200 mark. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it averaged out. I peaked at fourth year for some reason. Yep. Well, was shortly after going out with Emily, I think she must have brought some better um, exam, uh, you know, revising techniques along. <laughs> yeah, you can draw your our listeners can draw their own conclusions with that one. So, how many hours were you putting in? Like your average week, how many hours were you putting in with study? Not a lot, probably. Well, not a lot in evenings and stuff during during non-exam times, and then as you got up to exam times. Um, I remember particularly before second year, um, I had a trip to the World Cup in Brazil planned immediately after um, after the exam. And so yeah. I felt a particularly large amount of pressure there. So I, I wrote that. I, I happened to have a Brazilian flag. So I, I hung it on the wall and then just sort of stared at that every time I was beginning to lose concentration and then forced myself back to work. I mean, that was the hardest uh, exam period I had. I mean, I was overworking myself then. I didn't score that highly, I think, because I was uh, I was just so obsessed. But um, that's the sort of thing that tough exams can do to you, really, at that stage, isn't it? Oh. And yeah, tell us about going to Brazil and watching the World Cup. That'd have been a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, well, it was just—it was just so lucky that I happened to be put with a uh, Brazilian in my first year at university, who uh, invited me to come and stay with him. So uh, that made it all affordable and possible, really. But ended up watching seven games, which was 
and pretty unforgettable. And what was the atmosphere like over there? Uh, well, when Brazil played, I, I never went to watch Brazil, of course, but the, the entire country was just because they, they gave everyone a half day each time Brazil was playing in the afternoon. How good is that? And so at lunchtime, at lunchtime, the entire city, was, we were in a city called Recife, um, but the entire city was just wall-to-wall traffic because everybody was going home to watch the game. I've never seen sort of such, you know, every single person being obsessed with football. So is it like a religion over there, the football? Well, yeah, I, I guess um, there's not a huge amount of other sport that goes on. It's not like here or in Australia where there's there's so many different sports that are played, really, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I think Brazil is just just football but yeah I mean it helps as well of course but you had thousands and thousands of people from all over the world also there um, because of football so there was a bit of controversy wasn't there that um, all the people in the crowd had that little instrument and the, the background noise of the game was playing is that right? No you've got the wrong World Cup that was South Africa <laughs> was it? There you go edit this bit out of the podcast and um, so did you meet lovely Emily was that your, your wife did you meet her at uni? Yeah we were just put in the same little group um, and she thought I was very the lanky blonde unfriendly one apparently was what she thought of me at first it's pretty, um, pretty apt description I'd, I'd imagine oh, I, I felt it was unfair um, <laughs> but uh, she apparently I won a heart when I was um, a lot of the old ladies on the ward were asking for cold water and I was going to the other side of the hospital to get some out of some little machine and, and that softened her heart towards yeah. me and then it didn't help it didn't help it didn't do any harm, but also lots of the, the elderly patients were saying, what a good couple you were. You were. Emma, how much did you pay them? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was a good investment, wasn't it? <laughs> so did she take your eye right from the start? or? Uh, well, yeah, I think, I think certainly I was interested before she was. But, uh, but yeah, got there in the end. You played the long game? Yeah, it was a bit of a long game. Yeah. Like a so. year, a whole semester or how long? Just months, really. But, months. Um, and where was the first date? We went for a walk in Tynemouth, which is... Um, a little coastal town near Newcastle and then it was a dinner back at my house which I think she said at the time was the nicest nicest thing anyone had ever done for her um, which I don't think was probably true but yeah. um, she clearly appreciated the meal I'm sure her parents cooked her meals every time that'd be pretty disappointing so. <laughs> yeah I mean the cooking's alright I don't know what was <laughs> the ambience so what was on the menu I made a seafood pastry sort of thing for the main I can't remember what I did Otherwise, oh, and I got some after eights, which she pretended to like, and then she continued. So then I kept buying after eights for a series of our dates, and then it was only about six months down the line that she built up the courage to tell me that she didn't like after eights. You have to uh, for, for us Aussie lis- listeners, what's an after eight? Oh, uh, just a, a mint chocolate thing. Yeah, okay, so you thought you're on a winner there, and <laughs> it took her a while. Right, to you know, they were quite expensive. I was spending quite a lot of money on those after eights. <laughs> I still, I still tease her about that occasionally. Oh, that's good. Uh, at least you know, do you, do you like them at least or not? They're all right. <laughs> yeah. well, Just a Now, I don't want to push too personally or anything. Can you run us through how you proposed? That was um, a couple of years later. We were living in Stoke at the time. I'm doing a master's. The one year we didn't spend up near Newcastle. Um, and Stoke is probably the most unfashionable, undesirable place in the whole of the UK. Worse than Birmingham? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's just up from Birmingham in terms of geography. But in terms of reputation, you know, it, it sounds grim and it is grim. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, you know, you, you've got to... Having just been in Africa for two months, I really should have proposed when we were near Victoria Falls or something, but I didn't. Um, so we had a... We had a it was on a birthday in November, and I thought, I'm going to do it then. And so I booked Hang a on. restaurant. Can I stop you for a sec? Just... How long did you have the ring for? 
before that? I wasn't brave enough to buy a ring before, particularly after discussing it with her mother. We decided that there was just no way that I could come up with something satisfactory. So th- th- I wimped out on that one. I, it, it, there was no ring um, at the time, which she will very much back me up on being the correct decision. Save yourself uh, another after eight so, experience. So, well, you, you know, she's, she's, she's got very very particular uh, ideas on what she likes and doesn't like. So we, uh, so we went and bought a ring, you know, made a day of it, went and bought a ring uh, the weekend after. But anyway, so I, I booked a restaurant and I thought, I'll just do this traditionally. I'll just ask her to marry me and, uh, over a meal on her birthday. It'll, just be, it'll be nice. Fortunately, uh, she determined not to have some sort of surprise. So she insisted that I tell her where, um, where we were going. And then said, oh, it's only my birthday. Well, what are you booking? Why wouldn't we go in there spending that sort of money? <laughs> uh, so then she said we'd be going to Weatherspoons instead. Um, <laughs> which is, is a very sort of cut price chain of, of pubs, as I'm sure you're aware if you spent some time in England. <laughs> um, and I'm a big fan of Weatherspoons. I think that, that you know, it's a, you can't beat it for value. Yeah, but 10 pence for a car and a pint of beer. You know, I could, couldn't propose there. So then I had to change the plans a little bit. And instead, we went for a walk on some moorlands. Um, and I sort of fairly nervously looking around lots. And she was like, what, what, are, you, what are you looking around all the time? <laughs> There's no one around. And then I proposed there. And I, I, I put the wrong knee on the ground and one or two of you know, I didn't do it correctly, but um, is there but a wrong knee? Right I'm sure she told me I put. You know, did I put my left knee on the ground and it's supposed to be the right? Or no, there, was some, there was some, <laughs> there was some technical mistake in, in, in the delivery. How long was it between? How long you engaged for before the wedding? Uh, well, that was supposed to be a year and a half. Um, we were supposed to get married, so that was halfway through fourth year of university, and we thought, well, we'll get married on concluding university when we got a couple of months before starting work, and then the stresses of fifth year plus massive stresses of planning a wedding um, which I really sort of naively thought would be easy and meant that we ended up delaying it further nine months or so so it was about two and a half years in the end yep. um, but we weren't sort of planning a wedding for most of that time in fact we only really planned the wedding in the January um, before the March where we got married like we only booked a venue in February so we did it all very last minute in the end uh, which I think is a better way to do it in retrospect because people spend years just booking a venue years in advance and then changing things changing things uh you know i think how it it worked out well in the end and how much of the planning did you do compared to her oh she did almost all of it there was no chance i was going to get things right so what was the point (laughs) in the uh, year and and, you know i planned i planned the honeymoon which you know other than thinking i booked a a nile cruise and turned out to be a a sailing boat um other than that it was a good success (laughs) well i mean mate you couldn't even get the knee right when you proposed to us so what chance were you going to get the wedding right yeah well you know i'm good at holidays planning a wedding I mean it's not it's not something we're designed for really is it now I was on that so-called romantic cruise on on the Nile I don't want you to tell the listeners the reality compared to expectations yeah well so we'd we'd had a we had a week and a half um in a hotel uh you know an all-inclusive hotel in Egypt and just relaxing a bit and then we then we had our trip to and from Cairo going all the way down to down the Nile and back basically and a little bit of it was supposed to be on the boat but I I just naively thought that it would be one of the cruise ships that you see um and so I thought oh yeah it'll be good we're on a coach for most of the most of the tour but we've got two days on a on a on a cruise ship and we've never been on a cruise so that was quite exciting and then we got there and it was um a fairly dingy um 
sailing boat. Um, they, 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 they advertised it as a traditional felucca, but I, I think it was just a, just a sailing boat, really. <laughs> they, they also said, oh, you'll sort of sleep on the deck under the stars, but you're not really under the stars. You're under a bit of a tarpaulin sort of thing. And then some blankets that had clearly been used for many, many years. Um, <laughs> and, and there was 12 or so, I think it was about 12 probably, yeah, weren't it? Better 12, better six uh, couples. Yeah, um, all stuffed, you know, all, all alongside each other lying on this deck. Um, and it, it was just a long way from the cruise experience. And there was about, what, two toilets for every 20 people? A toilet for 20 people? Yeah, and they were on a different boat. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, no, it probably wasn't. And what about the cuisine on the boat too, mate? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that being up too much. <laughs> but the company was good, you know. No, it was good. It just, yeah, I suppose I'm picturing that cruise in a romantic cruise and, yeah, it was pretty much like a, like a tinny, an Australian tinny with a couple of foam mattresses on it, everyone piled up together. Perfect. Now, I'm interested to talk about one of the fascinating things about you, Sam, is I suppose you found religion late in your life, where I suppose most people are just a religion their parents are, they're kind of indoctrinated into that religion and follow it through, where you found religion later in life. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that. Well, yeah, so my parents would call themselves, would you know, we would tick Christian on the census, but um, I think it's fair to say they've not got that firmer sort of um, beliefs and certainly didn't, I, I didn't have a sort of religious childhood. And it was always something that I was curious about i mean i I definitely was never an atheist i always sort of thought there's there's something to this life so i think i was always sort of thinking about it a little bit and so when i went to university i I sort of uh, accepted a bible that someone had handed out and i couldn't make head or tail of that on my own and then i went along to church at church once that some of the other students were going to um but there was lots of sort of hand weight arms above their heads and and shouting and things and I just found that all a bit bewildering so then I sort of thought I'll give that a rest for a couple of years and it was only in third year um, and it was all tied into when I was starting to go out with Emily as well she she was already going to this um going to a church um, on a very similar journey to me she'd had a very similar childhood and it's just um, started going when she'd gone to university so then we did uh something called a Christianity Explored course which was just in, an, in one evening a week uh, the gospel the bible was uh, explained a lot more there and um, I just felt it sort of fitted a lot with what I'd always sort of thought but I'd never really understood and so at aged about sort of 21 I started going to church and uh, yeah so that's become a big part of my life. Is, is that a weekly weekly thing or is it a couple of times a week? We travel over to York which is sort of 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes away so we go to outside of lockdown and we go to our local church once a week and um, we go to a home group once a week as well which is when a group of us meet up to just read a bit of the bible and pray for each other and things um, so twice weekly really so did you have to change your lifestyle much or your behaviors or attitudes much when you you've gone from when you joined the religion or was your lifestyle pretty much in line with it already so in terms of actual lifestyle i mean I, I changed that much i think attitudes is what i changed i think you know everyone everyone will sort of change in different ways i think from my point of view, I'd always always had a pretty perhaps unhealthy uh, arrogance. You know, I'd, I'd gone to school, probably came out a little bit earlier, but you know, I, I had a certain arrogance in the fact that I was seatbelt boy. You know, I was different. I was, you know, I, I went to medical school, and most people at medical school were filled. It was it was filled with people who'd gone to private schools and had parents who were doctors and all the rest and that. So, you know, I've, I've not needed any of that. I've come here on my own merit and, you know, and I think I think that sort of attitude is what's changed most. You know, I, I've not Christianity. You, you accept that you're, we're all sinners and we don't deserve sort of heaven and things, but we, we get there via the Jesus Christ sacrifice on the, co- on the cross. Um, and so I think that side of things is how it's most changed me. 
Yeah. So less something up, maybe less self-centered and more community-centered kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that would be. Let's let's circle back to your career now. Um, so, what made yeah. you? Did, how old are you when you decided becoming a doctor or GP is what you wanted to do? It was only only a couple of years before going to university, sort of fifteen, sixteen. I, I, I always liked politics a lot. Uh, so I always thought about that a lot. I didn't fancy being sort of, you know, certain people go and study politics at university. And, and yeah. you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what you need to do to become a politician. In fact, I think the politicians shouldn't really have gone to university and studied politics and then got a job in politics and then worked their way up. So uh, I was quite determined not to, if I was to go into politics one day, not to be that sort of person. I did always want to do something that involved helping people. I think you get so much more satisfaction from doing a job like that. Um, and obviously the most sort of classical example that you can think of of a job which involves helping people was being a doctor. And um, I had the grades. You, when you've got good grades at school, you feel a certain pressure to do something like medicine or something similar, um, which I think is wrong. I think some people do go into it um, or you get certain pressure you know when you when you get some top grades you sort of feel school and parents and stuff pressure perhaps inadvertently but they put pressure on you society expects you to do something that requires free a stars or whatever and so i find myself going down that road basically but none of it was really too intentional i think it's fair to say none of it was really too much of an idea of what the the job would end up being like pretty happy to become a politician mate. you're far too good of like to become a pol- politician oh, there's, plenty of time. there's plenty of time for that maybe <laughs> the opportunity comes i may I, I may run if i get a chance but um <laughs> i could say that uh, but yeah but I've, I've enjoyed being a doctor much more than i expected during medical school that was the other thing that worried me at times was just is this all going to prove to be a, a, a massive mistake? But I, I do get massive satisfaction out of it. Like the job at the moment, for example, on, on a coronavirus ward, there's so much potential for you to make a big difference, not necessarily in saving lives or anything that you might see on television, but just having conversations with family, for example, because they're, they're, they're completely cut off from the ward at the moment and stuff. You know, they don't have a clue really what's going on with their relatives. So just in order to have sort of a Skype conversation with their family, say, or something like that, it requires somebody to set it up, or one of the staff to set it up and stuff like that. So un, perhaps unusually for doctors, because most of the time, most of the other doctors, I think, are just a bit more focused on, on the, the job at hand. Um, so I've, I've got a lot of satisfaction out of just arranging Skype conversations for, for the patients who I'm looking after or ringing family members and just explaining what's going on and um, or facilitating visits in for people so we allow a visit from family when um, when a patient is thought to be in the last days of life and I've, tried, I've arranged a couple of those with family members and stuff um, so I think that's what I really like about the job. Is the media portrayal of COVID-19 is that an accurate representation of what's happening in the hospital or is it a little bit different? Well I mean it's completely dominated my job pretty much every doctor's job for the last two months as you can imagine we've had to like half the hospital is just sealed off from the other half and you go in you get changed into scrubs and it's like you're in a a little cocoon um i'd say and certainly the patients and stuff there like they're in just a little little bubble and i I think that's the 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 side of things that i'm not sure the media always gets is just how brutally unpleasant it is i I mean i don't believe you've had a huge I suspect hospitals in Australia are a bit different because there's been a lot less cases and things. Yeah, far less. Than um, but, yeah. yeah, but it's been it's been brutal uh, on these wards. The number the numbers aren't necessarily that huge, even in the UK. Um, you know, we've got seventy or so patients on our coronavirus wards in Scarborough, which isn't a huge number, but it's just 
horrible environment where every single staff member you see is completely covered in PPE, you know, so you forming that sort of attachment with your patients is so much harder. Yeah. They're not got the pay, they've not got the visits coming in. Um, and it's little things like, you know, you get used to patients always having bags of sweets and grapes and whatever by the side of the bed. Um, but if there isn't a family member coming in to see them, they've not got any of those things. And then there's the practical thing, the worst sort of symptom really to have is shortness of breath. I mean, imagine the sort of psychological impact of struggling for breath for hours and days. So I think that's that's the side of it that I think the media don't quite get is, you know, there's, a, there's a bit of an obsession, certainly in this country, I think, about the, the, number, the number every day who died and the number of new cases and the number of tests we've carried out. But there's, a, there's such a human element to this which i think it's the small number who are going into hospitals and working there see but otherwise i'm not sure the media is really portrayed yeah they're more focused on the hard facts and figures aren't they not so much the human element of it yeah and i think you know they're wanting stories and um you know they're they're wanting certainly our media sort of divided down the middle and half of it's in the half that was in favor of the government before is still in favor and the half that are against a always looking for failures and things and there's just not not a lot of a wartime there's been lots of talk in britain about how it's a wartime spirit and you know it's the blitz and all this but i'm not sure that's really really what's been going on and how do you kind of detach obviously your work you see quite a a few emotional things in that so have you kind of found a way for self-care how you catch yourself from work and home life how you separate the two i think i'm quite lucky but as we discussed i've got so many interests between sport and religion and politics and things i think i can just drop into any of those fairly at ease i don't know other people struggle clearly more i find i I gain satisfaction from where i've managed to help and where i've not been able to help and where there's been some horrible situations i just find i don't you know i don't take it too personally or too much i struggle to explain why really but no i think i'm normally fairly fairly content that i've tried my best and sometimes you do particularly early on when we were first going on to the coronavirus wards i was really worried but um you know i wasn't doing as what i could be doing i could be helping people more i think you've just got to you've got to reason with yourself that you're doing what you can and you're just a you're, you're a relatively small cog in the overall in the machine wheel. you know and that's good focusing on the positives and the small victories absolutely have you got a favorite quote i don't think i have got a favorite quote no have you got like a motto or philosophy you, you try to live by or no I, well i've not got a, a set motto no i'm fairly happy that i'm sort of emily's just walked past and sort of started <laughs> suggesting a margaret thatcher quote um, <laughs> oh, i do tell, tell the audience what's the quote oh well, you, you turn if you want to. The lady is not for turning. Um, but I don't think that's a particularly useful motto. Uh, it's just, I like it's it, just a cool quote. <laughs> no, you've stumped me with that question. We've just found out who the intellect is out of the, partner, the partnership there. Any book recommendations? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're re, we, we, we are rereading Harry Potter for about the 26th time at the moment. So that probably tells you how sort of un, unambitious I am with uh, books. <laughs> um, and then I try to read politics, but I'm not, get, uh, not getting very far at the moment with a lot of my politics books. People keep buying them for me and it's just, yeah. it, it all looks very good on the bookshelf, but most of them are unread at the moment. Any movie or TV show recommendations? Well, we've, we've recently been working through, this is going to sound very cool, Disney Plus and Mandalorian was very, good i'm a big star wars fan um and i was uh, thought mandalorian was uh, easily the best thing that disney have produced in star wars um by some margin which isn't saying much because their films are rubbish but 
<laughs> I would recommend Mandalorian. Um, and then, to be fair, I have been quite enjoying the remakes of because Dis- I hadn't even been aware that Disney were doing this, but they've been sort of remaking all their classics in in a updated for- form, haven't they? Um, and yep. Lion-, Lion King was particularly good. They've run out of ideas, haven't they? Back to the well. Yeah, well, I've, I, yeah. To be fair, I've been quite enjoying even even ones like Cinderella weren't too bad, and then, uh, like I say, Lion King was uh, was good. Beautiful. All right, we'll finish off with um, Baker's dozen. So just thirteen rapid fire questions. Facebook or Instagram? Facebook. Archie Gemmel or Kevin Hector? I hope I pronounced them right. Uh, well, they were both a bit before my time, um, but Archie Gemmel. Manchester or Liverpool? Manchester. Surgeon or nurse? Oh, not a surgeon. I mean, I'm not. I'm, Nurses can be annoying as well, but definitely not surgeons. Brexit or no Brexit? Brexit. Morning person or not owl? Morning. Stock market or investment property? Property. Can't imagine trying to do something with the stock market. That's quite scary. Email or phone call? Phone call. Aston Villa or Birmingham? Well, I'd say Birmingham just because Aston Villa beat us at Wembley last year, Um, but I'm fairly uninterested in both. (laughs) Australia or New Zealand? I feel like there's got to be a right answer to that, hasn't there? Uh, oh, yeah, no, I'd say Australia. Okay, good. We've got a lot more Australian listeners. Politics or religion? You've got to put religion first, I think. Two kids or three? I'd probably say three, but there's no way I'm going to be allowed that many. And the hardest to last? Minnesota Vikings? Derbies? Minnesota Vikings. Oh. Got a, you know, American football's taken over properly. Jeez. Yeah, I've changed, mate. Um, well, thanks for your time, Sam. Really appreciate it. Yeah, look forward to hear how your career pans out in the future. Yeah, well, I don't, I'll be interested to find out myself. <laughs> Tired of weather, your bosom comes to you. Are-